Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome on today's show We have Siobhan O'Brien Jean, this is a musical whiz that she is From <laughs> tiny desks to to recording her own music To having a musical family Jeannie, and guitars and harmonicas She's a one-stop band And you <laughs> can catch her on her YouTube video And YouTube channels And she's uh, from Limerick And she's based in Virginia And hello, welcome to the show Siobhan, how are you doing today? Hi Aaron, how are you? How are you? Hello, Limerick. Jeannie Mack, I would love to be home at the moment when I can't. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I left Limerick about four years ago. I applied for a, an O1 artist visa and that took nearly two years. So while I was waiting for the visa to come through, I ended up gigging on cruise ships. So I did that for a year before I got the visa. So I'm here kind of three years now, but um, yeah, and because I'm because of COVID and because of applying for my green card and the travel documents that go with that, I'm hoping I'll have them by December and I can try and, oh, it'd be so great to get home for Christmas, but we'll see. You must be missing your family. Oh, big time. Yeah, big time. Yeah, my son is there for my parents, everything. I mean, I left them all, you know, I left them all to find my audience basically. What is that like to leave everything behind and search for music? <clears throat> it's very lonely. It's very empowering. It's a roller coaster, really. You know, I mean, I had gone to the stage where I found it always hard to find meaning in a mundane daily thing, routine or whatever, like, a, you know, and it's not that I want to be putting down people who have nine to five jobs. I just can could never do that. I could never do that. But I do think that we are kind of slaves to the system. You know what I mean? And I think that the system is rigged. So I think we've all been duped. <laughs> but um, I couldn't sustain that anymore. I mean, I I brought my first CD out in 96, Mumbo Jumbo, blah, 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 which I've actually just re-recorded and I'm going to bring it out on October 2nd because it's pretty relevant, probably was always relevant. <laughs> 
I started my own little record company called Little Red Hen Music back then. I had two tapes before that. <laughs> the first one was under the name Lily Tumbleweed, which was um, just a funny name I had for stage name when I was like 18 or something. But I did what I could do there and, and went as far as I could go. And I just, you know, I couldn't sustain a career in music, original music, without having to you know, play bars, play whatever, you know, doing stuff that you don't really want to be doing. Yet yeah, the first single from the new record is called The King's Fool. And that's kind of about that. It's, you know, we're all playing game to get where we really want to go. And um, I just couldn't do it anymore at home. I had to move. I had to figure out or try to see where I was supposed to be. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But, you know, at least I left because I was stale. I was very unhappy and there was no meaning for me you know and I'm on a journey and I think I'm close to finding my audience and I had to do it and I did do it and I'm glad I did do it but I do miss my family you know obviously yeah we all we all miss our family we all want to be the best career of what we want to do and be who you want to be and yet we still miss our, our family I mentioned you talk about you felt you were stale on different conversations how did you know that you felt that you were stale well because of that depressive not feeling happy feeling unfulfilled feeling like you're never going to get where you need to get to where you want to be how to get happy you know and I know that that's all an inner work that we have to do and I'm I'm pretty spiritual so I'm I'm very aware of working on myself and I also know that choosing to be happy is a very very real thing and the first time I heard it I just was the reactive defensive what do you mean I have to choose to be happy no no I should be getting my happiness from you and from this and from that but no we can't it's impossible you can't do it it's literally impossible <laughs> so we have to do the work on ourselves to attain joy and happiness and filter the negativity that is thrust upon us from every conceivable angle and I refuse to allow it anymore and that's you know a huge part of my journey since I left does music give you happiness oh yeah that's a given really I mean it's been hard for the last you know, for the COVID months but I was trying to do as many live streams as I could but it again it goes back to meaning it just was not doing anything for me and I know it was doing something for some of the people watching and and I will go back doing them but you know looking into a screen and not being able to have that 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 connection that you do have with the live audience um it's hard um so yeah it's all about connection and meaning really for me but and I have to get back to being more disciplined about just even singing every day just to keep my voice you know in good shape because it's nearly six months now I mean because when I was doing the, the cruise ship I was singing probably three hours every day and that was every day with no let up for six months and my hand was wrecked from it from just playing you know and that was bad but my voice was in the best shape ever when I came off that six month contract and I don't think that it's been there since, actually, even though I would have been gigging an awful lot up to March and, and the lockdown. You know, people think that singers use their voice, but the way you just describe it is like an elite athlete where you go into the gym and you train every day and you keep your body in the best yeah. shape. Amazing how the voice is the exact same. Oh, it is. No, it really, really is. And I 
guilted then that I'm not doing enough and I should be doing and I, I really do I am going to start doing something every day because I have to um, I can't afford for it to lose it you know and I mean I don't think I'll ever lose it but it is definitely from just using it and using it and using it and like it might not even come across to people that I haven't been singing but I'll feel it you know what I mean that's the difference I, I'll know myself but anyway yeah. yeah it's definitely like a I do treat it very seriously and I, I warm up all the time and uh, yeah I mean on the ship I, don't, I kind of used to have like a three o'clock hour gig and I'd warm up for half an hour before that and then I'd gig again at seven or whatever and I'd warm up before that so you know I, I learned my little discipline and routine for that so I mean I was doing it before that but anyway yes yeah it's like an elite an elite athlete <laughs> and people don't think that you know they think uh you know the voice is just these strings but your octaves are going pretty high and i don't understand what it's like to be in a live gig the energy but i know in, uh, in races the energy if you get off people around you but yeah it must be hard not being in the round that energy of people where you get to feel them enjoying your music and dancing to it and all that you know well i don't know if they'd ever dance to my music but, <laughs> but um i mean my ultimate ideal gig is a listening gig you know that I mean if I'm gigging on my own like the pub gigs you know there it's not about me at a pub gig it's about you're just in the background and people are coming in to eat and drink and meet people or whatever and that's not ideal for an original music setting so you know you're doing cover music for to please other people so and I love doing some covers I and you know and usually it's like when you learn a new song it's like oh I want to keep doing that one until you're sick of that one and then go on to the next one yeah I mean I'm a songwriter so I want to get to the point where you know I have people paying at the door to come in and see me and be able to make a living out of that and it's pretty tough you know it's pretty pretty tough so so that's why we all have to gig in bars to make our living you probably grew up gigging in bars and so like that but what's that like you mean playing in bars like yeah comparing to playing in a, an open concert oh god it's chalk and cheese yeah it just is uh, like I've played in bars for you know years and it just gets old you know it gets old and uh, you just want to be doing something <laughs> with a little bit more meaning <laughs> back to that word again <laughs> I don't know. It's chalk and cheese. It's so nice when somebody comes up to you after an original gig and, and picks out like a lyric or something or a one song or, you know, and, and says, oh, my God, that explains exactly how I was feeling or whatever, you know. And I feel like we kind of not a duty to write these songs because other people don't and that they can connect with. But that's what our talent is. That's what we're giving. You know, that's what I have to offer, you know, and that's what I do. And somebody else is some other talent that they're offering and giving back to us, you know, and then that's just the way the world works. You know, we're we're all sharing and sharing or whatever. <laughs> you know, and listening to your music, I get the sense of, you know, country kind of Bob Dylan kind of and your approach to but where did your style of music come from? I think probably my dad's record collection. My mother is a music teacher. Her dad was a music teacher and a conductor. Her grandparents were opera singers and had a traveling opera company. So the operatic and classical side came from the Boyer side, my mother's side. And but my dad played like a bit of guitar when he was in the 60s and 
he bought his first guitar, a Hofner, from Austin Graham, who was a, a famous local guy in, in Limerick. He was in a band called The Odd Couple with Charlie Cheevers. And uh, I actually wrote a song called Austin Graham for Austin on his 80th birthday. He's since dead, I think last year he passed away and uh, he was 84, I think. Dad adores music. And so the records were there and there were, you know, those crooners, there was folkies, there was, it was pretty varied, but they were all centered on the singer, you know, good singers and good songs. So I think the appreciation of a good song was ingrained in me early on, I think. And it's one thing having the talent to be able to sing that's given to me as a gift down through the generations. But it's another thing then to, I mean, I really never thought that I would write songs. I just thought that's just kind of a godly thing that, you know, I'm never going to be able to do that. And I started playing guitar at 16. And I think I wrote my first song about four months later. It was like I needed the guitar as a kind of an extra limb or a crutch or something. And 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 when I wrote it, it was the, all the lyrics came at the same time. And I didn't even really realize that I'd written something. And then I went, oh, my God, I think I wrote a song, you know, and uh, just thought, wow, maybe I can. Maybe I can write songs. It's the ultimate expression, you know, that God, yeah, I mean, to be able to just express it. I had a strict upbringing, I think. And so I feel like I was not oppressed, you know, I'm not going to say that, but I mean that I felt I had to fight or something. Um, and it was just over the top protectiveness, I think, you know. But so I had that urge to defy or defend <laughs> and... Um, I've had to unlearn those traits because it served me back then to make me who I am. But yeah, there's no need to defend and, and defy now because we can all have civil discourse, hopefully. And, um, you know, well, that's not true, actually. That's what I want. But, you know, a lot of people, when you try to have conversations about things that they don't agree with, everyone gets hot and bothered. And we've lost that art of being able to have civil discourse, you know. And it's very apparent over here in the States, you know, people can't, um, they just get emotional straight away, you know. And I don't know, that's what I've been trying to, you know, make myself a better person and be aware that you don't know everything and just because you think that you know doesn't mean that that's it so it's just about being open to everybody and um it's usually the people saying open your mind that aren't opening their own minds but anyway <laughs> anyway why the guitar i don't know i don't know maybe because a lot of the main influences when i was 14 were the bob dylans and Joni mitchell and Neil Young and Leonard Cohen came later, but that whole, I suppose I saw real truth in, in, in like Joan Baez standing on a stage with the guitar on her own and, and, and singing truth and, and Bob Dylan and, and Joni Mitchell, you know, I mean, and I suppose you could take it with you and you could, you know, play it anywhere. Um, I had been playing piano, but I just never, and I still want to play piano, but it just, I don't know, it just, it resonated with me and it felt like it was part of me then you know a crutch <laughs> it's it's funny how like some instruments we gravitate to and some instruments we we don't yeah and i think the guitar is kind of like this woody grounded element when you when you start playing and the sound off it kind of creates that, i think yes yeah it's very um immediate and it's very of course it's right there so it's pretty physical too because of the vibrations you know 
Yeah, and growing up as a mother, as a music teacher, were you musically trained? When I went to piano, I learned like the rudiments, the basics. And uh, so I'm glad I had that. My son is learning it at the moment. And we just had a little video thing yesterday because he was trying to change keys to suit his voice, but he didn't understand all of it. But that's because he doesn't have the basics, you know, and it is good to have the basics. But um, and even when I'm transposing myself between keys, I go back to the piano. You know, it's I, that's because I, I can I'm visual. I can see it where it should be on the piano but um oh and when you say like what do you mean like being able to transfer the keys or the notes in the music or what transposing keys yeah like say you're singing in one key and it's too low for your voice or too high you have to put it into a different key so that it matches the key that you need to sing in wow i know <laughs> I mean, like, you know, a scientist explaining physics or something to me, but like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, whatever, <laughs> you know. I know when people listen to music, think, you know, oh, this there's any technicality, but when you're a musician with an instrument, there is all this technicality. Well, there is, yeah, yeah. Well, especially nowadays, too. But I do like to be pretty organic, you know, and I mean, I'm not a huge techie head. I need to be a little bit better, actually. But yeah, I have my Yeti, I have my um, Ethernet, I have my adapters, I have my, you know, a new webcam that is just putting my head in there. But anyway, when you wrote your first song at the age of 16, what was the name? It was called Him. And it was about a guy who got killed off his motorbike, Honda 100, down in Spanish Point. We were, used to be hanging around Spanish Point in Milton Malbe when I was 16. And, and he crashed into the back of a tractor. And yeah, and I was in Irish college down in Dingle and my parents came down to see me. <laughs> and my mother kind of said, oh, yeah, there was a guy called McMahon got killed off his bike. And we're like, what? I remember bawling, crying and just going, no. I mean, I knew him, but I didn't know. I mean, when you're 16, I suppose it's the, the hormones are flying anyway. So everything is ex, ex, accentuated, you know. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was kind of the first shock, I suppose, of somebody that I knew that died and he was so young too. And then I, that night, I think I just wrote it and then I realized I had written it and then I put music to it. And was it just a guitar as the background instrument? Yeah. I think I played it at my Debs. <laughs> <laughs> with the with the band, I think I had about fifty different cars, and it was kind of ridiculous. But that's how you learn, you know. You just, you know, it was okay. I mean, it wasn't the the second song I wrote. I thought was a better song. I don't have recordings of those. Like even songs I wrote with the band that I had in the nineties, Robert Colopy. If anybody's from Limerick, listen to this: Robert Colopy, Doug Murray, and Freddie Cumber. We had a band in the 90s and uh, we wrote some songs together and one of them was called Confusion and I don't have those recordings I just don't know where they are and I really would love to find them if anybody has them anywhere we didn't bring them out we didn't release them it was kind of a demo we did in, in Zarek's studio but anyway they, they usually say the earlier work is the best work but then later when it's like a bottle of wine over 10-20 years you become as best as you do as in the early days you know I don't know I mean you know, you're learning so much at the start. You could do something good. Yeah, I mean, I think Kurt Cobain was, you know, he's so amazing to be that good a songwriter early on. And Dylan, I suppose, too. And all the greats really had it really from day one. But I mean, you have to get better. And I too, I think, too, when you're younger, I mean, I used to write very easily and freely and, and like have pages of stuff when I was younger. And I think it's because it's all new and you're still excited and it's just so new and you're delighted with yourself, you know, but I think when you're older, you know, life gets in the way and you're a mother or you're 
running a household or you're whatever you're doing, you know, you're working and, you know, all of that is just noise. But you have to do it because that's the way society dictates <laughs> that you have to do it or you don't do it and you live off the grid or whatever. But it has been harder to be creative or whatever. So and even through the lockdown, you know, I should have been more, more creative, but I wasn't. So there's just lots of factors. Yeah. Discipline, I think, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, discipline can be part of it. But I also think, you know, everything has its time. And if it's not time to yeah. write and be creative, then yeah, time. I do think it really works if you have to be on your own. You have to be isolated. You have to be, you know, you have to hone in. You just have to hone in. That must be hard trying to be isolated and, and tune into that inner wisdom, be able to write these amazing scripts that, that you can sing from. I mean, it can be hard, but look, if I just said, stop being lazy, get your discipline together, you know, I would just do it. And I know when I have to, when I, when I want to, I will absolutely do all that. Mm. I need to decide to do it. You know what I mean? I'm not just like, going, oh, I want to write today. No, I'm not like that. You know, there's other people who are great and they can write, 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 write. I'm not one of those, you know. Yeah. And when you left, when you finished school, did you go down a music route or did you go on a completely different route? Well, I wasn't a good school person you know I, I, I'm one of the day, the dolly daydreamers and um, school didn't suit me I've hoped that in the future we have different ways of teaching and learning you know um, I think I'm just pretty visual and there are ways to learn easier for people who are more visual you know and there's, there's just different ways of teaching but we've just been all lobbed into the one way and that's supposed to be the right way and then if you can't keep up well tough you know I don't, it's just not, you know, it's not, I don't think, anyway, whatever, I wasn't into school. And so I think I did a secretarial course and that was good because now I can type. <laughs> and I was gigging at 18. I, I was playing music from when I was 18. And um, I got my first like full-time job as a special needs assistant 15, 16 years ago. So up to that point, I was just gigging and uh, I had my son when I was 21. So, you know, I was really lucky that I was able to be with him all day and then gig at nighttime. So, and I had a great family because they were all great babysitters. And to be a mother that young, wow. It's, uh, and to be able to gig and all that, it sounds like you're you're very lucky with every, with the support network around you. Yeah, no, I really, really was. And um, yeah, I mean, He's only 10 years younger than my sister. So, you know, they kind of, the, the, the younger two, kind of, he grew up with them too. So it was great. When you were gigging, did you have a, were you gigging by yourself or with a band? I started gigging. My boyfriend, when I was 18, was already gigging. So it was just easier. <laughs> As I said before, it's like, I, I don't, I don't know how long it would have taken me to start gigging all on my own if he hadn't been there and I was just able to fall in with what he was doing, you know. So my first gig was in the old stand in Limerick. What street is that? Oh my God, it's between Henry Street and O'Connell Avenue, the old stand, yeah. I remember being like six feet back from the mic going, oh my God, this is so scary, I can't do it. But I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. Trying to get nearer to the mic all the time, but just like scared stiff. But you want to do it so badly, it's just a weird thing. How did you deal with nerves at that? Like nerves is nerves every time, but like I know, you know that's what I'm saying. It's 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 like you just had to. I don't know. You just rolled with it, even though you're sick in your stomach. You know, yeah. Just just had to do it. <laughs> just put your warrior shield on and just do it. Yeah. Oh, and were you singing your own songs? Not really. I mean, we wanted to, but you just knew nobody wanted to hear them. <laughs> you know, I was like. 
No, we were doing, oh, he was a big Bob Dylan fan, so, and he, you know, we, we were doing a lot of folk, that folky songwriter stuff. Wow. You know, it's funny, I was, I was listening to the radio last night and Bob Dylan released a new song there, and I was thinking about our conversation there last night, and one thing that kind of struck me is to be able to hit those kind of notes and to hit the words of the song, it's kind of like another form of meditation in some way, because you enter this... Mm space of of kind of zen like and you come up with these words on paper and then you know the listener listen to them and they they only focus on the beats and how the song sounds but when you start digging into the lyrics it's like wow you know that's good to say that because it's even myself when i like a song it's the melody first it's, i'm not the lyrics don't stand out to me in any song first it's it's always you're caught by the melody or the groove of it or whatever and um like there could be songs <laughs> Like years later, I'll go, what? That I never heard that lyric in it before. It's funny, you know. And I used to remember like when buying LPs and stuff that you'd have the liner notes and you'd have the lyrics inside it. And I'd be listening to the songs for the first time, reading the lyrics. And I never liked that. I could never. It just nearly put me off the song. I had to kind of listen to it without any expectations or any parameters, you know. And then afterwards, go to the lyric when you already like the song or something, you know. I don't know. It's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Everyone does it in a different way, you know. <laughs> yeah, or, or a word gets stuck in your head or, or you hum the, the beat. Or one line would blow your mind and you go, oh my God, I have to look at those lyrics again, you know. I know. So you have a couple of albums out. You, But where did kind of the putting the albums and the writing kind of come into tuition? I don't know. It just happened by, by by chance, really. I mean, that first time I wrote the song and then I thought, OK, I have a little bit of confidence now. I can, you know, try and write and um, hopefully it just got better, <laughs> you know. And in the middle of writing, did you discover your spiritual? Did you kind of discover that over time or did that kind of jump out of you? Well, I mean, being raised Catholic, I think you have a foundation, you know, and it's hard to get away from what you heard as a child unless you're, you think it's abhorrent, you know. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a Catholic now, but I remember I loved my my confirmation. I loved the idea of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that's what drew me to Native American spirituality, you know, Great Spirit, Mother Earth and Father Sky. That means that to me is just sense. That's the Trinity for me. It's the same Trinity for, I suppose, you know, whatever people's interpretations of, of their own. But yeah, I just, and I've been drawn to, I suppose, spiritual poetry or something. Like, I mean, I love John O'Donoghue, the guy who wrote um, Anamkara. And, you know, I could open up a random page in that book any day and get something from it. And then I started getting into Eckhart Tolle and, you know, the Deepak Chopras and, the, you know, all these people. And, you know, you take what you take out from them. I'm not academic. I'm not intellectual. You know, I, I just I might get one line from a whole speech that one of them said and go, holy God, that is so profound, you know. With Eckhart Tolle, it was the idea that he wrote The Power of Now, right, about living in the present moment. And that was profound for me, too. And I struggled with that for years, trying to figure out what that really meant. But one of the other things that he said that was huge for me was when you become the watcher of your own thoughts, you know, you've moved on a bit. You can you now are able to look at yourself fairly objectively. I mean, I used to even get to the point where I nearly see the thought coming into my brain and kind of go, no, I don't want that thought. Go away. I mean, I know that might sound crazy, but we need to be observing our own thoughts. 
because our thoughts do become a reality. And, and that was another huge one at the time going, oh my God, I don't understand. I remember going to a clairvoyant guy one time and I said to him, I have to stop thinking that everything's going to be great because I'm an idealist. <laughs> And it's just disappointing the whole time. And he was like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You have to, you have to keep on, hang on to that hope. And I said, but it's not true. It's not there. I can't find happiness, I, you know, and all this. And he was like, he said, look, see that lamp over there? That was somebody's thought one time. And that really just exploded my mind. And I thought, oh, that's what they mean. Okay, that's what they mean. <laughs> So that everything, this Yeti Mike was a thought in somebody's mind one time. You know what I mean? Apple cider vinegar and honey in hot water was a thought one time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything started with a thought and we just think it into existence. And I really, really get that now. And, you know, and they say, manifest your dreams. Yeah, we can. We literally can. But you have to you have to do, <laughs> to do something about it. You know, you need to. Yeah, and it, I, like I, I just love all that stuff, and that's why I'm such a. I want to get to the bottom of things all the time. I want to get to the nitty gritty of why this is happening here. Yeah, you, you wrote a song about Native Americans. Tell us about that. It's called Indians. Yeah, I have a friend, Rain, and she lives in South Dakota on uh, Yankton Sioux Reservation, and I stayed with them for a while. And you know, I was had, <laughs> I started writing the song on my head in the Works nightclub in Limerick. And it was in my head the first verse for, I don't know, years, months, I don't know. And anyway, I, Eamon Heher, who, who produced that record, Siobhan O'Brien, it's just called Siobhan O'Brien, is a great guitar player, acoustic guitar player. And he got the rhythm going on it for me because I couldn't articulate musically what I wanted to do with it. And anyway, so I wrote it in South Dakota and in Ireland and the Choctaw tribe sent $170 to the Irish people during the famine. And when I found that out, I, it just blew my mind. I just couldn't believe they had been through the Trail of Tears years before that, where they were all put off their own lands and shoved into reservations. And they had to walk to Oklahoma from all corners of the country. And, you know, they'd gone through that. So I suppose they knew what oppression was. And I don't know, somehow they heard from, I don't know, somebody Irish that told them about it and they did it like a whip around. <laughs> In 1847, sent $170 to the Irish people. That just, just, just So anyway, I thanked them on the fourth verse of that song, Indians. And it's just a beautiful story. And thank God we have a, a memorial to thank them for that in Middleton County Cork. It's like a stainless steel bowl of feathers. It's actually gorgeous. It's really, really nice. Oh, excellent. In You had to perform on South by Southwest, right? I played at that in 99, yeah. What was that like? I barely remember. I remember being very overwhelmed and really not knowing how to exploit the business. I'm still not a business person. And yeah, you know, if I knew a little bit more or like I say, if it was now and I was doing it, I'd know how to kind of network a bit better, you know? So I feel like I lost out by not just not having a clue, basically just, you know, of how to manipulate and exploit to move your career on onwards further, you know. Yeah, you're at that time. You just felt it was the business side of you wasn't there. But to perform in like an arena like South by Southwest, but you know, it's it's like the pinnacle of, of Texas as well. But you know, it's oh yeah, it's huge. America, yeah, America, you know. And when the lockdown happened, I was down there this time for South by Southwest, and I'm sure we never got to do the gigs we were supposed to do. Well, I think we got one of them done, but um, yeah, 16th of March, that was it. Bye bye, live music. But I should, hopefully I'll be down there again. That's where I made the record. I made my record in 
Austin with uh, John Bush and Matt Hubbard and they are in Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians that band you're probably too young you don't even know who they are <laughs> <laughs> that is so true <laughs> Edie Brickell had a, a massive hit with an album called Shooting Robert Bandits at the Moon I think it was called and uh, it was a huge breakout album it was huge all over the world and uh, in 88 I think it was so John was her drummer or her percussionist he was a founding member of the New Bohemians and Edie Brickell is married to Paul Simon now so that's who they are and to be connected with those, that kind of band must have been amazing it was amazing they are amazing musicians and great sonically and musically and creatively and we really really gelled straight away which was gorgeous <laughs> it was just you know because I'd gone through a lot of I had interviewed a lot of producers in Nashville and then in Austin and that was the one that was easy so I would say to have a band and you know to be part of a band is probably like a, a marriage in a sense of you're all energetically gelling together and if something's not right it doesn't work no and, and it's true but the thing is I didn't even know them and we all just really gel but musicians do that it, that like you don't really have to know them I mean we are really united with just playing together and that's you know that's what we do <laughs> and it's just great when they're actually brilliant <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah <laughs> I used to row and when you're in a four man boat and every Everything clicks, boom, and it's, I'd say it's probably the same thing in the band. When it, it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And it's, it, you know, no matter what you do, it's like I always say, I love watching somebody who is doing what their skill is. I just love to see people in their element, you know, no matter what it is, they're just in their element. They know what they're doing. They're freeform, they're flowing, you know, that's what in your element is. And, uh, you know, every, like all of the outside pressures all the time is really trying to get you out of your element and we need to go back to being in our elements you know that's what we're born to do is to born to create to be in our element to be joyous to be free sovereign beings you know and when you're writing music is that when you're free and liberal yeah i mean i still have terrible hang-ups about not being capable of writing so when I do let that go and you come out, yeah, I mean, the end result is the song and, and that's a great feeling. It's such a great feeling. It really is. But when you're in it, I'm going, I, I mean, I can calm myself down a lot more now. But I think I grew up with a lot of judgment or something that, I don't know, I feel like I had to prove myself all the time in society, I mean. And whereas I don't feel I have to do that so much anymore. You know, I just do it for when I want to do it. I mean, this new record, it's the new record, but I, I mean, I in January, I will have recorded it two years ago. So, you know, it's near, I feel like it's nearly time for a new record again, but sure, I mean, I'm still paying that off. <laughs> and that's the way it is as an independent artist. So, you know, I can absolutely write a new album in the next two weeks if I really wanted to, you know. It's just sitting down to do it. Because I have, I, I put down ideas all the time, you know, so. Yeah, and that must have been hard to know that you have an album two years done and it's like, do I want to do new work or do I want to, you know, not be an in a musician because you're independent and it's probably a hard graph to get record deals and productions. And well, you can forget about record deals because the system is rigged. So, I mean, I knew that back, you know, when I started my own record company in 95. So that's a myth you know I mean a record deal is basically only a loan you know so you might as well be doing it yourself and getting a loan for the credit union <laughs> okay but uh, yeah I would never thought that the, that'd be rigged I thought it'd be because that's what people want I get the record deal it'd be fantastic and that's the dream but it seems like not not when you know 
a lot of the time your creative control is taken away as well. So I knew earlier on that I wouldn't that I wouldn't be able to deal with that. I mean, I even I remember Epic Records came to see me and they wanted to sign me. And then the same two people were wanting me to represent Britain in the Eurovision Song Contest. And I was thinking, what? That is nowhere near where I want to go. And they kept ringing me and ringing me. But you make so much money and it'll be this and it'll be that. And this whole over the top selling this idea of fame and fortune when that's not where I knew I wanted to go. It was all I could see was like they wanted me to go this down this path for this Eurovision Song Contest, which was nothing I ever wanted to do. And I kept thinking, if I do that, then I'm going to be here. But how am I going to get back to over here where I really want to go, like writing my own songs and my own path? That's all I could see. I was like, this isn't going to work. This is not where I see myself going. And I was probably right because they were already, before I was even under their control, they were already telling me what to do. And I just couldn't, I couldn't go with it. You know, that was right for you to go down that way. And yeah, yeah. So much. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very important to keep, you know, hold on. I I knew I was very aware from day one that, you know, because I probably heard all of those stories of bands being just crucified financially and rights wise, you know, their copyrights were taken away and their publishing deals were gone wrong and they were never for the artist. And, you know, I was very aware of that from the mistakes of the guys from the 60s. And I don't know, it's just always very precious about my copyrights and my songs. And I didn't want to be give them away. I never did. And I still have them. So and funnily enough, I'm re I'm re-releasing Mumbo Jumbo, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's still my song, you know, which is great. And uh, I don't need a record company. You know, I don't mind compromising, but if it's not for the right reasons, no, I'm not going to do it, you know, so. It sounds like you're the Van Gogh or Mozart, not Mozart, like the Van Gogh of music in a sense of you're, you're painting the song and this is how you want the song to be. And if I go on the record deal, it'll it'll make the painting not great, you know. I think it taints it. I do, because I mean... I think there's a part of selling your soul to it and I just could never do that. I think you definitely have to give up a part of yourself because of what they're going to dictate for you to do. And I'm talking about like in definitely in the pop music area business. What are they really selling? They're not selling a song. They're selling sex. They're selling falsity. They're selling whatever, you know, and that's just not me. I just... You know, I, I, I wouldn't and I'm not saying I want to be in the pop world. I obviously don't. You know, it's just not, it's a bit more pure when you bring it to the independent level. That's what I mean. I totally agree. It's the indie artist is kind of there's, you know, I listen to a lot of music and I think the indie artists or the independent artists, it's kind of like that raw uh, element to it. But yes, when you hear it, it's wow, that's amazing. But yet there's no... When I say fanciness to us, it's it's raw in a sense of you can kind of connect with the artist. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I wanted to make the, I, I, the two recordings I just did, the new re-release of Mumbo Jumbo. And then I also recorded People of the Power, a song by Patti Smith. And for the first time, I recorded in 432 hertz. And I wanted to do that for the record. And we couldn't because we were using a Rhodes organ. And that can't be retuned or detuned. So we just couldn't do it, which I, I really would have liked to have done that. 432 was the original concert pitch and there's different various stories about why they changed it. But there was one 
particular one that the Nazis changed it to 440 to create more chaos, subliminal chaos that we don't even know that's happening. But 432 is meant what they call the God, the God frequency. And uh, it's meant to be just more harmonious. You know, I don't know if you feel a difference or hear a huge difference, but I wanted to try it. So I did it in the, I did it for the last two recordings, two songs. So we'll see. <laughs> that is cool. Being, taking an old song and applying. I love it. I can't wait to hear it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. It, it really does. I'm just never happy with the recording of the original recording. I didn't have the confidence to dictate to the people in the studio at the time because I just didn't know anything you know I just was clueless and um, so I just left everyone to and nobody batted on my behalf you know what I mean mm. so and I didn't know how to make it right sound right yeah and that confidence you with that confidence now you probably know where to go now than before right yeah no we're all learning all the time and I want to keep growing and learning every day that's all I want to do expand you know what was it like to perform on tiny desks well, I didn't do the tiny desk. I just, oh. I did, um, I, I did, well, it was the, for the competition, I think. And I wrote my, my COVID lockdown song was called I Changed. And I just entered that into it. That's what it was. I watched it earlier and thought you were actually, you did it the way it performed on YouTube, but I must have got that wrong. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's not. Oh, God, no, that's a massive thing. See, the system is rigged. I'd never get in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, and in writing that that song, what was the the message of the song? It was called "I Changed," and it was just I like solitude, and I like so the lockdown for me is not a you know it's not a huge big deal. I mean, I have I've had my downs. Don't get me wrong and pretty down downs you know just out of frustration of like this is so ridiculous why are we still six months later it's just we'll see what will happen and what will come out out of all of this because I don't believe that all the truth has been told but anyway it's about how I look back down the road at this time and go this is when I changed <laughs> you know but then again, I see myself changing every day. So I was chatting with someone there a few months ago and we were talking about the soul. And she said, you know, the spirit and the soul change every moment. But yet the human body changes every day. And, you know, our music tastes change every moment. We hear something new. It could be in pop, it could be hip hop, it could be jazz, mm. it could be. But yet we, we associate through the, the frequency, the energy of the song. It's like, oh, yeah, that's great, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's all about everything is energy. You know, everything is energy. Money is energy. Singing is, I mean, singing is just, it's so physical. I mean, it lifts my vibration. Even if, like, if I were going to a gig and I was like, oh God, I can be bothered going down here now. Blah, blah, blah. And it, like, it, it just dictates moods, you know? And it's like, you, you want to listen to a particular type of mood when you're in a particular mood yourself, you know? So you're not going to, because I remember like being high listening to some other song and on repeat. Oh, this is great, it's great. And then you go, oh, and on another day, I go, I want to listen to this, but I don't want to listen to it. No, I just don't feel like listening to that song right now. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about Fool's Gold. How did that come about? Oh, The King's Fool? Yeah. The King's Fool is basically about me moving over here and my adaptation into a new country and system and rules and you know, trying to cope with that change. And it's funny when I when I started playing it locally, um, a lot of people like literally stopped in the tracks and like I'd usually only played the, the original stuff at the end of the night when it was quieter. So that's when you have more people listening anyway. 
and um, you know some of my regulars and stuff were oh my god I just I, I really I feel like that that's about me and I didn't think that that would be a song that people would resonate with but because it was so personal to me but you know when you're listening to a song you you put yourself into it and um, I think everyone thinks that they are playing the game that they're all in their jobs just to pay the bills and um, that I think that that's unnatural we're not supposed to be living like that we should be having more time to be doing nothing and to be with your family and you know and grow spiritually and um, grow in every way and you can't do that when your job dictates and takes all of the time out of your day and your life that you can't be with your family anyway that's me and uh, that's what the song was about and then when everybody else was saying that they feel the same you know everyone doesn't have the luxury of going okay I'm just going to stop doing my job and do what I really want to do because you know they have families and they have to bring in money because you have to pay the mortgage and you have to do this and you have to do that and you're regulated to death and it'd be nice to see a more positive way of life. It also sounds like you were searching the lyrics of the song as you searching for what you found and I bet you've probably found it now, right? Well, I think I like to get the solution at the end of my, all my gibbering, jabbering mind, you know, washing machine. And I think for me, when I write songs, it's like I come up with a solution at the end and that one was very apparent that I'd gotten an answer for what I yeah what I was searching for you know and even when you have the answer it's just like well I know that now so I'm aware of it and there you go back to Eckhart Tolle now I'm the watcher I can look now at what has been going on whereas before I didn't know that I was in that situation but anyway (laughs) you're driving people nuts (laughs) you probably have a a selection of instruments but except the guitar what's your second favorite instrument to play no i play a bit of harmonica i only just as a another crutch yeah i'd like to be able to play piano is what i was gonna say but i mean i just i'm just there's no point in me saying that i should be just doing it <laughs> and why the harmonica you know i started out being a big bob dylan fan and i don't know there was a kind of a power in it there was it's a very and of course, Woody, Woody Guthrie didn't play much harmonica. He did, but not in mean, Dylan. I don't know, a people power in it or something like the social injustice and those songs that went with, I don't know. And uh, my dad got me a harmonica and he goes, here. And I was like, oh, I'm going to that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just, it's just a series of messing around with it and finding what you want to do with it. You know, for a small instrument, it has, it has its uniqueness to it, but you don't hear a lot today in, in music, you know? No, it was great when Alanis Morissette came out in the 90s and she used to use it so minimally but it was still so cool um yeah i don't know there's not that many women that play them anyway i think cheryl crow does a bit but i i I haven't seen that many women yeah it has its unique like when you hear a harmonica you know that's a harmonica and it kind of brings you it's like a snake charmer you know that the the flute and the snake that's what you kind of feel a harmonica you know yeah yeah it could be right yeah yeah that sounds yeah like even it's funny because when you've been playing in bars and Nobody listens all night. Next thing you play the harmonica and next you see the heads going around and I go, oh yeah, you're only looking around. Oh, I'm here now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you noticed me. I'm like Eeyore out of Winnie the Pooh. Thanks for noticing me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, that's the ego with us artists. But um, just being aware of it, be the watcher. (laughs) 
<laughs> as musicians, there is a lot of ego around in the world today, but like the musician is being able to just to perform, do the lyrics, write them and produce. And that's the job. But yeah, it's like, my song's better than yours. And this song, and it's like, no, we're all good. We're all artists. You know, it's like the Michael yeah. versus Da Vinci kind of scenario, you know? Oh yeah, no, it is. And I think, you know, as artists, you do need to have the ego too, because it does drive you. But you just need to be aware of it, you know? And um, I'm super self-aware I know when I'm being egotistical <laughs> you know so anyway if someone was starting up on, on music and or as a songwriter what advice would you give them just have an open mind and, and, and observe and believe you have to believe if because nobody's going to believe in you you have to believe in yourself <laughs> you know it's a very lonely road because you're going to have everyone around you saying but you can't make money from that. You can't have a viable career because it's all about money. You see, it goes back to the same. There you go again. Everyone's telling you you can't do it. So, you know, you're battling against people and the system and you have to be so bloody grounded to be able to take the negativity and still move through it. I mean, I moved over to America at 47 years of age. I mean, like, you know, but I had to do that. I couldn't stay there and be unfulfilled. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I'm getting there. <laughs> you know, from listening to you, it sounds like being a musician is more about the journey than, or, you know, they say it's a marathon instead of a sprint. Yeah. You know, I guess, you know. Yeah. And yeah, that's funny because when I was a swimmer, I was a sprinter. I even still battle with that because I'm either all gung ho, gung ho, or it's, mm -mm. you know, it's, there's not like, it's, it's hard to stay in the middle and be balanced all the time because I don't know, it just is, it's hard. But no, I'm, I'm glad that I've done everything I've done and I really wouldn't change anything. No, I feel like you have to take the journey to get to where you just know more, you know, and you, you know, the wisdom comes then. Yeah, it's like the music teaches you. I, I work with a nutritionist here in Limerick and her and I have had conversations in sport and she would say, you know, sport, yeah, it's great to win the medals, but sport teaches you. And I would assume being a musician is the exact same. Well, I grew up in a, in a music musical and sporty household. So my dad played rugby for Ireland and he was always involved with rugby. So he was like manager and coaches of teams all the whole way up through. So, you know, when I when I was he sent me to swimming training when I was eight and, you know, like he'd be telling me I was a monster champion at 11. And but like <laughs> he'd be saying to me, you got to grasp the nettle now. You have to get over the pain barrier, you know, and I'm like, I'm 10. <laughs> you know what I mean? And But, you know, so I had that and I always knew about team spirit and he was very, very aware of the psychological aspect of physical sport. He was super aware of that. He was manager of the Irish rugby team and, you know, he brought Raul Fiennes, who's Ralph Fiennes' brother. He was a, an ice explorer or something. And, you know, he brought him in to talk to them about endurance and psychologically being prepared and... He brought in a marvellous Marvin Hagler, the, the boxer, you know, and his thing was starve the doubt, feed the faith. And my dad was very super positive about, I suppose, ambition or whatever. And I don't know if, because I'm the eldest of six, and I don't know whether he spoke like that to the boys. I don't, I mean, I just know what he used to say to me. And I was the eldest, so I suppose I got the most of it. You know, he's like my biggest fan and he knew he believed in me from day one. Like I went to France when I was 18 doing au pair. 
And I saw on the TV there was some kind of an amnesty gig or something, and it was Sting and Alan Toussaint or Demi's Russo's or somebody. And who else was there? Big artists, anyway. And then there was Tracy Chapman, and she was just new then. And she came out doing on her own with the guitar on her own on a huge stage singing talking about a revolution and i just was just blown away and i remember writing home to my father saying oh my god i just saw this girl called tracy chapman and she's just unbelievable and i now know what i'm going to do i'm going to be a singer songwriter and um, and that was it and he um and then like years later when i'd be saying oh, i'm sick of this i hate the music i'm just sick of it i'm gonna get a job now and he'd go, oh, I better get out that that letter you sent to me from France. <laughs> but, you know, he was just unique, really. Yeah, I mean, I was a monster champion at under 12. And then I gave up swimming in, at 14 years of age because I just, it was too much. I couldn't, I was cycling from out in the country into our swimming training at six o'clock in the morning, then going to school, then doing it there that night, cycling back home and freezing. <laughs> And I couldn't sustain it. I just, you know, the others, their parents were driving them there at six o'clock in the morning. I had to cycle. <laughs> and uh, no, so, and then, you know, so that was 14. And then I only started playing guitar at 16. So I found my guitar at 16. And then I knew, you know, and then at 18, I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So, and I'm still doing it. Yeah. And there I still say, oh my God, I'm sick of it. I'm so sick of it. I'm, that's it. Forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. But it's his burning desire. And that's what, it, you know, the king's fool. I, I, I can't, I, I can't get away from it. I can't stop because it's not finished. <laughs> I think it is an addiction. What we love so much is our, our addiction. And we feel like I'm sick of it. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. You're going to come back to like a boomerang, I think. And probably that is the path. A boomerang, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can look at it like an addiction. And I have gone, is this just ego? Is this, what do I really want out of this? But, you know, when you get that feeling of when it all goes right and you are doing your thing and it all goes right, there's nothing better than that. That's what it is, you know. And when you know that you're connecting with people and even helping people, you can't knock that, you know. In everything you know now, do you wish that you could be starting at 16 in the musical environment that is today? Oh, God. I mean, I, I would hate it. Yeah, no. But then again, it's all your perspective. You know, if you have good people around you and look, it's still about being positive no matter where, when you're living, what time you're living in. It it, it is about being positive because you just, you're not going to get anywhere doing anything if you're in a negative environment. You know, you just, it's just impossible. You just can't do it. I mean, my son is just starting to learn guitar now and that's, he's, you know, late doing it and he's a good singer and everything. But I, you know, he has to start gigging. He, I mean, you have to do the work. You have to get in there and do it because you can't just be great straight off. You just can't. You have to put in the time and the work. And his gigging. As the, long as you enjoy it, you know. Oh, definitely. And is gigging like the badge of honor? Say, I've done, you know, like training is the, it's gigging like a form of training for musicians. Yeah, yeah. You could put it like that because while I gigged for years in Ireland and when I, went on the cruise ship four years ago you know because it was so intense every day jam-packed every day to sing it for three hours playing for three hours I felt like that that was my Germany to the Beatles you know when the Beatles went to Germany and they did all these club gigs for I think two years or something 
you know, they honed their craft there. And I feel like the cruise ship was like that for me, even though it wasn't my perfect audience. It was just, it just knocked all the silliness out, out of you. It knocked the nervousness I used to have before gigs and putting obstacles in the way and hyping yourself up for no real proper, you know, you just like, if you don't control the nervousness, it controls you and you just make mistakes. And um, I feel like it just knocked the silliness, knocked all the corners off of me. And even like when, when COVID started and we weren't used to, you know, getting a mic and doing this and doing all these tech things, like you just have to learn them. And I remember the first time doing it going, freaking myself out, going, I can't know what I'm doing. Um, you just have to keep doing it. And yeah, it, that makes complete sense. I totally agree. Yeah. Honing your craft. You, yeah, you have to do it. <laughs> Got to put the, the hours in, you know. And do you feel like you've honed your craft now? I do. I do. And it's not that I'm, I mean, right now I should be even singing more because yes, that's what I was saying earlier on about the quality of the vo vocal, you know. You, you, I feel like some artists, you know, and they're like in their 70s now that were famous artists in the 60s or whatever. I mean, I know they're older, but Judy Collins, for, for example, she's a folky from the 60s. Her voice is still pristine, whereas Joan Baez's is gone. I don't know why, but my interpretation of that is that you're keeping the muscle going, that you're practicing and singing every day. And I think that has to be it. But then again, I could be wrong. I don't know. I know Joan Baez says, you know, her, she just doesn't have the range anymore. Anymore. And yes, you're you're nearly what is she seventy five or something. And I know my own mother says the same. Oh no, it's just it's I'm losing it because I'm getting older. And you and and you do. But if you put the work in and look, I don't know, I could be wrong, but that's what I think. Are you a alt, are you an alto soprano? Like what would your range? Probably mezzo soprano. I think I have a three octave range. That's not exceptional, you know. So so you're not an operatic humming ha kind of person. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can, I've recorded like the Ave Maria and Nella Fantasia and stuff like that, and I can do them, but I wouldn't be a technical, classical, operatic singer. And like my mother wanted me to get my voice trained when I was like 18, and I was like, no, 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 because I'll change my voice. Because I used to think if you went to singing lessons that you were going to turn like, a whoa, whoa. I was like, no, I don't want to be that. <laughs> It was just a kind of a, an innocent reaction, but I was right, <laughs> you know, so, um, but I mean, that's not to say that getting your voice trained is not good. I'm not saying that. Um, yes, it's very important for breath control and for supporting, knowing when you need to support and pull in the diaphragm and all that kind of thing. You, you, I mean, that you, you do need to know those things because otherwise you're singing from here and you're just wrecking the vocal. You need to be singing from the diaphragm, you know. But yeah. What would be your perfect audience? You said you're looking for an audience these last few months. Well, people who are listening and get what I'm talking about in my songs. And that's kind of it, really, wrapped up in one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what yeah. we want, to listen to yeah. our craft. Yeah, that's what we want. To get it. Yeah, I want them to get it, you know what I mean? So, And I mean, I, I, I don't write. My songs are not, you know, it, I think that they're an acquired taste. They're not, I mean, I got national airplay here in the states with this new record and i was on sirius xm and like that's great and everything but it's only a minuscule airplay really you know and it's not enough to launch a career so you know i put forty-five thousand into this record and kind of that's it now so whether i sell all my cds and records to pay for it is another thing and can't even gig it now either so it must be hard to, to fathom that you've invested all that money it's only gotten to this far N not really because that's the way it's all been. 
I mean, I, I'm not annoyed about it. You know, that's just have to whatever have to move on now. You know. So, but I, I mean, I'm still very hopeful for this record. I think something still can happen. You know, I'm very, very proud of it, and we'll see. I did a music supervisors conference last week, and that um, they're the people who place um, your songs in movies and TV series or whatever. So I think it was positive enough. So we'll see. You know. What's next for Siobhan? Oh God. Well, I'm bringing out my the mumbo jumbo on the uh, October second, and then the second single People of the Power is coming out October 23rd so I'll start pushing that now in the next few days Before we wrap up do you want to play a record or, or a song that is Yeah I can do The King's Fool or I can do You Can't Run Out of Love Have you listened to them? Which one would you like? I listened to all of them Which is your favourite? Oh I don't know I don't like them anymore now <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what I can do here Okay Okay this is The King's Fool now I am an immigrant, I left my son, my home, my life, my family, my work, forever I will roam. The strain of uncertainty, a life of rejection, internal revolution, I choose my own. Rejection, the king's fool. I play the game, the dancing bear, the court jester. I am like a demon, I'm cursed with this desire. Biblical bureaucracy. Can I just play my life? Please take away this longing. Let me crawl back down my hole. I'd under my childhood bed. Too sorry to console the king's fool. I play the game. The dancing bear, the court jester. I'm eagerly awaiting my artistic expansion. I meditate, I subjugate, I harness my Atlantean. Chatter in my head gets loud. I pray for pure transitioning. The king's fool. I play the game. The dancing bear. The court jester. The king's fool. I play the game. The dancing bear. Wow. The 
King's Fool, I play the game, the dancing bear, the court jester. Yeah. Siobhan. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. I was just going to say that you beat me too. I was just going to say thank you so much for having you on the show. It's been fantastic. Thanks a million. Yeah, it's been great. And hello, Limerick. I miss ye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.